welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker, and we've got some great panelists here today. We've got the always uh, lively Aaron Bush, co-founder of Novik here, uh, Matt Dion. A contributor at Novik, a frequent contributor, and David Amore, CEO of Playment. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. good. Yeah, probably the only time I've been called always lively, but I I will take it. <laughs> Thanks, David. I was going to say, how do you always lively? I'm not sure how to take that, but uh, it's, it's also <laughs> nice. as four of us, sometimes three, sometimes four. It's a good group of people. It's fun. Definitely. We actually are looking to maybe get some more uh, outside stuff as well. Aaron, you want to explain? Yeah, so we're excited to, to kickstart a mailbag. We know that we have a, a really awesome audience. We hear from many of you all the time, and we know that you all have many great insights and great curiosity as well. And so we want to shift the conversation to be more inviting and inclusive of all of you. I know we sometimes get lots of emails or Slack messages or LinkedIn <laughs> messages about comments and you know questions about the things that we talk about. So um, going forward, I think we can just kind of shift some of that even into to one place. So if you have any comments or questions, just shoot us a note at podcast.novic.co. Um, and if you submit an interesting question or topic prompt, um, we'll we'll do our best to carve out some time on the podcast to to talk about it. And similarly, if you have any comments or anything to add about a topic we we discussed in a previous episode, we'd love to hear that too, um, and potentially riff off that in, in future episodes as well. So we can involve more voices around the industry, more thoughts. I think we'll all level up that way, and it'll just be fun to have more um, engagement with everyone who who listens to this podcast. So um, so again, don't be shy if you have any questions or comments, just send them to podcast at novic.co. Absolutely no idea how this is going to go, but please, if you're <laughs> out there and interested, uh, make us happy. Shoot us some some interesting thoughts and questions, and we'll, we'll plug you into future episodes. So excited to get that started. Yeah, obviously, uh, Spotify doesn't really have like comments or anything like that. So it's kind of hard to get sometimes a little bit of feedback from listeners who aren't on something like YouTube. So be great to hear what you guys think, for sure. Uh, we've got some great topics today, as usual. Uh, we got some stuff on uh, Niantic's new web game uh, or new game announcements that I think will be pretty interesting. Uh, the state of Web3 gaming in general, the latest in generative AI, as, as we like to talk about here lately, and then Sega's acquisition of Rovio. What? Should be pretty interesting, <laughs> right? The shocker. <laughs> exactly. But we're going to start out a little simple uh, with just some stuff on Europe's uh, console and PC data. Yeah, so uh, some high-level data for the games industry to get things going. So GSD recently released its Q1 data tracking Europe. And actually, Circana released its its March Q1 data tracking the US as well. Um, so can throw that in there too. And they're both similar. But what's notable is that video game sales are down across the board compared to last year, especially on console PC. But obviously, mobile isn't showing too many signs of strength either, which we've we've talked about many times on this podcast. 
Um, the data did note that casual games had their strongest performance since a year ago. So mobile as a whole um, did outperform the holiday period, but that's still not exactly a sign of strength or growth to just kind of be back to where it was a, a year ago. Um, the What's interesting is that the only thing driving outsized growth in the market right now is the PS5. In Europe, console hardware sales rose 41% in Q1 compared to last year. And that's because the PS5 is up about 370% um, year over year, while the Switch is actually down 18% and Xbox is down 10% too. So um, in the US also, it's similar hardware spending as a whole is up 21%, purely driven by the PS5. And now uh, what's also interesting is the PS5 has surpassed the PS4 in terms of unit sales on a time-adjusted basis. So um, looking to be a very strong win there. We talked for a long time about how supply chain restrictions and just holdups across um, the console industry, even game delays, have slowed the the growth of of console sales, especially the PS5. And now it's really the the only hero of of the industry as a whole when you look at these big picture numbers, uh, which is really interesting to see. Obviously, growth is going to have to slow from what it is right now. It can't continue at four hundred percent growth forever, um, but. It is outselling um, Xbox two to one in its key markets, which says a lot. PlayStation. It also says a lot about Xbox too and how they they need to to really level up their, um, you know, first party pipeline to to drive sales across the board there too. But, anyways, just thought it was interesting to just share a quick update on on Q one as a whole. Can I can I ask a question? So, yeah. as you say, PlayStation Five up a lot on last year, but also up because you couldn't buy a PlayStation Five last yep. last year. So, I mean, is it selling well, or is it just saying selling, you know, four times better than last year when you couldn't buy one? It's selling really well, um, and so I mean, as I mentioned, compared to the PS4, on like the same time period since launch, it's now outselling the PS4, um, mm-hmm. and. The fact that it is outselling Xbox <laughs> as tremendously as it is, I mean, it's just it's a it's a sign that PlayStation is just going to continue to to kill it this generation. I think, and now that we have seen that, um, you know, kind of take away the supply restrictions and we see more untapped demand, it still is really strong. It's going to continue to be strong for quite some time. So yeah, it won't, won't continue at the same level of growth, but I think it'll still be the the outsized winner in console for a long time, probably until whenever the Switch 2, whenever that hits. And then that'll that'll mix things up a bit again, as, as it always does with Nintendo. But yeah, this isn't just a, a fluke or just good compared to one year. It's a, it's a real long-term hit for Sony. Because it makes you wonder then if uh, if the X Cloud really does anything to push any units, especially when it's like you could play it on PC, you could play it on your phone, stuff like that. Like I gotta imagine that's not really boosting unit sales like they want it to. It's all about the games. Uh, yep. Where are the the big AAA games that everyone wants to play? Uh, still, still waiting. Been waiting for a while with Xbox. So once once that maybe turns around, then maybe we'll see some more acceleration there. But at the end of the day, it's all about the games. Always has been. Speaking of games, but not on console, Niantic had a couple of actually interesting announcements. If you want to take that away, Matt. 
Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to give a kind of a quick update and roundup on some announcements um, or just a bit of bits of news from Niantic that came across my desk recently. So, um, you know, we all know them for Pokemon Go and they've had a, a few titles that have come out and kind of not done so well. And, and there are now more titles that are coming out and we'll kind of see if they're able to break through. So the first one is called Peridot. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It was first announced in April of last year, um, and it's set to go live next month. Uh, it's been in beta for several months now. Um, my understanding is it's more of like a Tamagotchi-style virtual pet uh, type game with a focus on breeding. Um, so that's one game. Um, they also have a new game in soft launch um, called Marvel World of Heroes. So obviously Marvel IP first announced in September of last year. Um, uh, I had a quick look at Data AI. It's it's apparently in soft launch in New Zealand uh, very recently, so we'll see how that goes. But that's sort of um, create your own hero, take them out on missions in your neighborhood, uh, and that's expected to launch sometime this year. And then the the big news from from this week was the announcement of Monster Hunter Now, um, and that is also starting beta testing later this month, uh, according to the coverage, and set to launch uh, globally this fall. So Monster Hunter Now, I think, is going to be much more similar to Pokemon Go, right? You're going around, you're catching the monsters um, or battling the monsters. So, you know, I, I had a look at the data, um, just kind of wondering, like, we, we kind of all know that none of their previous titles have broken through or really been successful. Just some, some others that they put out were Pikmin Bloom. They did NBA All World. Um, none of those have really had any sort of meaningful success but if you look at their their revenue they're still pulling in like a baseline of a million dollars per day just on pokemon go which is kind of crazy right it's really successful um just uh just a couple months ago february 25th they brought in eight and a half million dollars from pokemon go alone crazy crazy success so um, I guess two questions. One, will any of these new games be a hit? And two, does it matter uh, when they have this like incredible baseline of um, success and popularity from Pokemon Go? Uh, of course, they're going to continue to support that game. Um, but anyways, I just wanted to kind of throw that out as a discussion point. We've got three big titles, uh, two of them with big IPs, Monster Hunter and Marvel. Do we see them... I don't know, expanding the audience of location-based games or AR games, breaking out of their Pokemon bubble. What do you all think? I have an opinion. I, th- I think the Pokemon location-based thing w- was like a one-time thing. Like, I, And I think it will continue to be successful. I think it's amazing. But I don't th- – and I, I thought that when they talked – they did talk about doing a Harry Potter version of Pokemon Go, right? And that they did. Came and went, it didn't flopped. Yeah, that was another yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Okay. And I, I said, oh, well, that's going to be massive, obviously, because Pokemon Go is massive and uh, Harry Potter IP license, but just doesn't work that way. I think uh, I think that there's one game and it's Pokemon Go, and you, I, th- I don't think you can just apply another license to it and have a similar success. It feels like everybody is doubling down on the games that are working for them, and Jesus Christ, it's working for them, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, as you say, then maybe they don't need to. And then if it's not a Pokemon Go style, then they're just competing with everybody else trying to get a traction on a mobile game, which is so hard at the moment. So uh, my guess would be no. I haven't looked at any of these games, but I just know how hard it is to do that. Yeah, I'm curious I mean, about the the Monster Hunter one. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's definitely not the same scale of ip as pokemon um 
and probably shouldn't be compared to, to Pokemon. Um, but I, I'm curious to see what they do with that one, just out of curiosity. Um, but yeah, I probably agree with David. Just I have some skepticism. Um, what is interesting, though, I mean, it, it's constantly being rumored now that Apple is going to unveil its mixed reality headset, whatever that is, mm. sometime this summer. So perhaps, you know, if if Apple feels good about something, perhaps it actually maybe is the onset of some new movement from a hardware standpoint, because I think for for these games, the hardware is just as much the holdup as anything like augmented reality on a phone compared to what it would be on a headset is just going to be night and day. I doubt we're going to see mixed reality adoption, you know, really surge anytime soon because the rumors also say the headset's going to be like $3,000 or something, yeah. which is not mass market at all. Um, but, you know, perhaps we're, we're slowly entering an era where these kinds of games can see a revitalization um, in a different in a different way. But obviously, that still is a long term bet. But from Niantic's point of view, too, I mean, they're not really a games company. They're they're more of a of a software company in the sense of how they're building like a 3D map of the world and then being able to leverage that for all the other things you can do um, uh, with with AR in the future and something like Pokemon Go massively profitable. It just funds those those building ambitions it's more <laughs> it's more of a driver for the other side of the business and maybe they're hoping that they can unlock something else on the game side too to just further drive their reinvestment elsewhere where the larger opportunity probably is or just continue to have their name in the game until eventually a like ar gaming location-based gaming whatever like it actually picks up at another time um, similar to even just like Sony staying in the game with VR, probably just waiting it out for it actually maybe one day to take off in a in a more notable way. Um, sort of seeding the ecosystem themselves. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. long term play, but yeah, hard to be super optimistic in the the short term. Probably. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Well, I, I think Aaron makes some interesting points, um, and I was sort of thinking as you all were talking, like if if um, if their ambition is really to be like this sort of software infrastructure company and not a game developer. Like why do they keep making games that when, you know, you talk to anyone in the games industry about like their views on whether these titles will be successful, even going back to Harry Potter and NBA all world. And these, like, I don't know that that many people were really bullish on their um, prospects. Right. Like um, I don't know. So, so the question that I have is like, why do they keep doing that? And maybe it's because they want to, you know, I'm speculating here. Maybe they want to sort of prove to IP holders that they can be good stewards of IPs and they have built up their business development team and their capabilities so that when they are ready to go uh, bigger with their their other products that they're funding with R&D, the Lightship SDK and things like that, like they, they're ready to kind of hit the ground running and say like, hey, you know, big brands, we're ready to do this AR thing now that AR is, you know, mass mass market whenever we get there but I, i'm just speculating i don't i don't really know um i am not particularly optimistic about peridot or marvel world of heroes or whatever so maybe uh i don't know uh, that's that's kind of my perspective i think they're just try, trying to fund their r&d and prove that they can be good stewards of ip and um, be ready when uh, the ecosystem is ready for them 
I, I feel like the big question is whether or not the AR even matters. So like, yeah. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a Pokemon go player at this point anymore, but my understanding was most people turned off the AR over time, either for battery reasons or just cause it didn't matter. And NBA all world launched without even having AR features. Like at this point, are they even an AR technology company or are yeah. they a location based company? And like, that's not really new tech. It's just GPS. Well, they're totally, I, I, what I've read is that they prompt a lot of like the Pokemon Go players to scan the world around them. So basically they're like outsourcing their 3D scanning of the world everywhere by leveraging their players, um, which is, <laughs> which is super interesting uh, wow. to be able to do that, like as a, as a by, byproduct of another business, especially a game. So yeah, I mean, I think the AR is super important. That's definitely their long-term play. We're just kind of in an awkward period with games where it's, you know, it's not up to its full long-term potential, right? Yeah. Well, it seemed like the Marvel one was trying to do the location one maybe a bit more with the move in the title and stuff like that. So I guess we'll see whether or not they launch any of these other ones with, with the, AR. That's a different one. The, like the movement one, that's a that's not Niantic. That's like a fitness-based Marvel oh, game. Geez. Different announcement. This Marvel, Marvel World of Heroes is, is more like Pokemon Go, I think. Yeah. Well, a lot of uh, a lot of attempts tra- coming out here, but we uh we have an interesting transition for a Halo vet developer moving over to Netflix of all things. Yeah, it should be pretty interesting. So a couple of days ago, it was announced that Joseph Staten is joining Netflix to create a new triple A multi platform game. I don't know much about this guy other than that he was a notable leader um, in Halo. He um, helped lead several of the early Halo games as well as Halo Infinity more recently. But you know, more important than any one specific person, it's really interesting to see, in my opinion, how Netflix continues to to quietly ramp up its ambitions behind the scenes um, in more ways. So the last time um, we discussed Netflix, I noted that Netflix has so far released 55 games all of which are mobile-based. And at that time, this was like a month ago, it had plans for another 126 games, 40 more for this year, and then 70 more via development partners for 2024 or later, and then 16 more at in-house studios for 2024 or later. So obviously, Netflix is building far and wide for better or worse. And it went from you know, just licensing on mobile to small acquisitions to launching major new studios to now extending beyond mobile and looking to make big budget multi-platform games. And this is the first time that the company has clearly announced its ambition for a AAA multi-platform game. It'll definitely be a while before we we learn more, I'm sure. But I do think it's now a matter of time before we start to hear more about Netflix's plans to bring games to TV um, and how their cloud streaming is going to work, how controllers are going to work, and and all of that. I, I really just think it's a matter of time before we start hearing much more about all of this, especially since their pipeline is so crazy <laughs> massive at this point um, that you know if once, once more of those games start edging towards launch, and I don't know the timeline on, on those. I have a feeling most of those are still... Um, mobile but um yeah netflix is going from being an outsider to just spending its way into being a kind of a mover and shaker in the market so no one really knows what it's going to turn into or what it's going to look like or how it's really going to work inside the ecosystem but 
But man, super interesting to see these these ambitions continue to ramp up. It's uh, there's quite a lot hidden behind that headline, isn't it? Because you, you shared that with me. I go, okay, Netflix hired some guy that I hadn't heard of. No disrespect, but actually, you're right. What that suggests is there's a multi-platform strategy coming, and it's about the TV, and then there's something about the hardware. There's quite a lot uh, behind that. Interesting. Yeah, they've definitely tried to make some attempts with the game stuff, right? Because they had that Microsoft or the Minecraft uh, Telltale style one that they did and then the uh, the trivia crack kind of one they've done they actually have a lot of the interactive ones kind of buried in the interface but they're not really like game games yet so i I, i'd be interested to see if this is like pushing towards that or if like that's as far as we get is like the um you know the bandersnatch kind of experiment uh and we don't get a whole lot from there but i mean so many question marks just with the model right because they're not monetizing they're not doing in-game advertisements so they're um, optimizing for engagement. Um, and it's not clear to me um, how that, like if you're going to spend millions and millions of dollars making a AAA cross-platform, um, you know, hardcore game or whatever, like how does that investment pay back just via engagement? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, we can speculate, but it's, it's just a very different business model, right, For th- than we're all accustomed to when it comes to making games. Um, so how they go about that will be very interesting. Yeah, it's like an alternative reality of Game Pass <laughs> a bit, <laughs> but starting from a different foundation in a way. Yeah, so many question marks, but that's what makes it super, super interesting, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. Definitely. Well, speaking of overly ambitious projects with lots of games <laughs> announced... Uh, web Web three is, is is a bit of an interesting space recently. If you want to dig into that a little bit, Aaron. Yeah, so I'll just sort of be the host of of this segment because really David is is the guy who's operating in the the middle of it all. And I know you think a lot about this stuff too every week, Devin, and, and you as well, Matt. But but David, obviously, the Web three games industry has undergone profound, swift change over the past year. Venture funding has cooled. New game releases have slowed to a crawl. Uh, if you look at active wallets, transaction volumes, they're you know mostly stagnant and well below their highs, but there still is a tremendous amount of building being done behind the scenes. And you, as a founder of a Web3 games company, are operating at the, the cutting edge of everything going on here. So I'd love to get your pulse on, on where we are right now and maybe to, to start I'm I'm curious what your reflections are as an operator in this bear market. Could you just give us a feel of what is it like to to operate right now, or even just compared to to a year ago? What yeah, what's going on? Yeah, I think I've never I've made games in all sorts of verticals before. This is really odd because what we set out to do two years ago hasn't changed, give, you know, give or take. And yet the sentiment towards it is like, I, in 2021, it was off the charts. And then we haven't changed anything that we're doing. Right now, it's down here and largely down to people's feeling toward crypto, which is odd because we're not really particularly connected to, to crypto in, in what we're doing, but we sort of get caught up in it. So it's strange. It's like things that are completely outside of our control really affect how people feel about what we're doing. And I've never really experienced with that. You know, if I'm making mobile games, then everyone has a feeling about mobile games. It's fairly consistent. It doesn't go up and down. And that's hard to navigate. What I, 
what I have found is that, uh, you know, I guess everyone's talked about this, is that a lot of things were being propped up by the fact that numbers were going up in crypto. So all the time there was a bull market. Wow, we all, aren't we amazing? We've done all these really <laughs> clever things. It goes the other way. You go, oh, yeah, we're not amazing at all. And it's quite interesting to see, well, who's left? Who's still got conviction in what they're doing? Who, Who's the things that people are doing? What still works even when things are going down? And that's like a, a good ex. I mean, it's tough, but it's a really good exercise to to test whether what you're doing has legs or not, because it need any game needs to survive things going up or down, right? So, so I think it's a good test, but it's harsh. Um, I think um, another thing I notice is that there's really not a lot of commonality in um, what people are doing in Web three. You can't really usefully say Web three games because it could mean one of ten things. Or more, right? And I don't even know what's going on. On, you know, we're doing our thing in our pocket of Web three games, but the things that other people are doing, like play and earn, and all those those kind of ideas, we're just a long way from it. I'm not saying one's better and one's worse, but there isn't. You know, there'll be times we've all done things where, okay, this is the playbook for making a mobile free to play game, or Facebook Canvas game, or a PlayStation game. There isn't a playbook, so everybody's just trying things out and. There isn't necessarily a lot of crossover, but it all gets lumped in together. Uh, I suppose another observation from you, you mentioned sort of market calling. And, you know, when we started the company, then uh, the level of everybody wanted to give us money, we were pushing it away. And then the sentiment, again, not because we're doing anything different, but the sentiment changes. And now you're thinking the market is further away than everybody hoped. Like there isn't millions of people playing on um Web3 games. And so then you're relying on VC money. That uh, So you're relying on the sentiment of somebody, a group of people you don't really control. So it's sort of, uh, it's certainly more testing, but I think it's sort of, what it flushes out the things that are less credible. Yeah, I think it's interesting, the point you were making about how, like, what is a Web3 game? Everyone's trying all sorts of different things. It's still pretty experimental, but it, it kind of makes me reflect a bit on at least the the era of ultra hype from a couple of years ago where it felt like the the masses were mostly moving in similar directions you know chasing play to earn chasing play to own chasing whatever acronym of the day really <laughs> was at the time and now it is different from that where it, it doesn't feel like there's as much chasing or maybe that's just because there's less FOMO, I, I, you know, today than, than there was at the time, just creating some narrative that everyone is chasing after. But I'm curious also um, from you both, Devin and Matt, um, David mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of experimentation. Lots of people are trying new things. Are you seeing any patterns in the direction that these types of games are, are going? Like whether it's an acronym or not, um, like, do you agree with David that it really is kind of all across the board, or do you see, um, you know, smarter companies starting to find some patterns, start moving in in similar directions of best practices or whatever it might be? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people trying to like fix or or move on from the play and earn, right? Like play and own or free to own or like whatever whatever version you want to like do. But it's also like kind of a a space where we haven't had a big release like Axie to kind of prove out a model yes or no. So right. everyone's kind of in this weird space where they're like, uh, I hope what I'm building is going to work because I don't, I, I can't look at anything and know other than like, it, I'm not building Axie now. 
And that's that's all they can go off of. But that but then there's like the Asian markets who are happy to release like these fairly high quality games like out of South Korea that are like MMO style games, ARPG style games, where they're building it like around like still a normal game that they would build. And then adding the Web3 stuff and being like, this is fine. We don't really care what the market is doing. We're building games that we think are good and we have crypto elements and we think that makes them extra exciting. But this is make or break for us. We're just going to make great games. And I think that's a big difference versus Western markets. I would agree with that that take from Devin. Like there are a lot of companies that are still kind of building and they they may not be like out there making these big announcements, but it's happening and it's sort of going to bubble up over time. You know, the the sort of um, argument that you always hear is that there's so much money and so much talent being put into this space and game development takes so long anyways, under the best of circumstances, that it's, it's, uh, it's going to take some time and it's like almost inevitable that we'll start to see some really quality products. But, to, you know, from a skeptic's point of view or maybe an outsider's point of view, these, these big companies that raise a lot of money They've been pretty quiet uh, for the most part, um, you know, we're, we're, and again, it comes down to how long it takes to make a game. But a lot of these companies also, they didn't necessarily come from gaming. They came from crypto. They came from finance. They came from, you know, wherever uh, and were able to raise a bunch of money on the strength of a crypto plus gaming pitch. Uh, and we're still waiting for that to materialize. Um, so, you know, I think it's a mixed bag. I think we're going to start to see more and more um, games get canceled or or just um, under deliver, let's say. Um, but the teams that uh, are you know truly bought in and truly have expertise and know what they're doing, people who come from the industry like David, um, you know, they're going to be the ones who are, are more likely to deliver and sort of push the space forward. Now, granted, I'm biased. I like, happen to be a believer in this space, as I think most of us on the call are, but um, that's that's kind of my observation thus far. So let's talk about the, the timeline a little bit. So we saw a fire hose of games, or you could say games in air quotes, um, that, that flew onto the market 2021-ish um, that, you know, most of them were very play to earn. They were more financialized products with some type of game wrapping to now, um, you know, Devin, he writes our monthly market updates in, in Novic Pro. And in February, there was not a single notable new game release in, in Web3. And I think in March, there might have been one. Um, and so we've, we've swung, the pendulum has swung from a fire hose of, of games or so-called games to nothing to we know every, there are lots of teams building, but what you know, what is the realistic timeline for when these we start to see like the uptick again and and releases? I know all of you watch the space, you track different companies and teams. Are we going to see another uptick again later this year or are we going to have to wait longer than that? You think depends on the quality we're looking for. There's tons of alphas and betas right now. And that's the thing is just like everyone's in in this like semi public, mostly like for holders and stuff like that kind of testing phase. And I feel like half of these are going to run out of runway funding and just crumble, or they're just ideas when they actually put it out. You know, people are going to be like, this is kind of bad and it's just not going to make it anywhere. And it's like a lot of those disappear, I think, by the end of the year. And it's like, then big ones like Star Atlas, Shrapnel, all these other like ones we're really excited about. I feel like we're just going to be waiting. Like Christmas is going to come. <laughs> Santa, where was those games? 
Whereas like, like I said, if you look at the Asian markets, like these triple A, double A quality games are coming out uh, on mobile, on desktop, uh, from especially South Korea. And they're just largely ignored. And I think that's kind of a, a an interesting dynamic where it's like the quality is actually really high. And we go, where's the quality Web3 games? And it's like, well, they're just not over here. They're not on the they're not in the typical space where we're usually talking about Web3 games because we're talking about the ones like you guys said that got all this funding and did all this. It's actually the guys who got mid-level funding but are really solid game developers that are putting out the quality games. But I'm really interested in the space like where David's at that's like super dependent on the blockchain technology side of it because a lot of these are like adding blockchain technology to a game game. Whereas like what David's building is like it's it's all or nothing. And I'm really curious about that space where that comes out because David's kind of betting everything, for example, on the blockchain. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested in teams that are doing things that you couldn't do, making games that you couldn't make without a blockchain, or at least it'd be hard or ill-advised. And I don't think those come from AAA, let's call them studios. Uh, I think... Because then you're less likely to take risks. If you're spending $50 million making a game, then you're not going to try world ideas. You're going to probably play it safe. So I see more interesting projects coming from, yeah, okay, so let's call them double A. And and now you have people that aren't doing it because they can make a quick buck. It's because they're doing it in a bear market and they're not trying to get rich. They're just... uh, Hey, I think we can do something cool that people haven't seen before using this technology. To, to what I hope is that that category is successful. That's the more interesting stuff rather than just taking Web two games, so to say, and add a token to them. Less interesting, I think. But you know, not to say they won't be successful. But like maybe, yeah, we're sort of blindsided by a new type of game while we're busy looking for the star atlases of the world. Are you seeing anything cool or interesting out there? in the space of like the more truly on-chain games that are doing something new. You could talk a bit about what, what you're doing with Playmint that's new and interesting. I think the audience yeah. would find that cool, but other other examples would be nice too. So I suppose what I see is a bit of a polarization. So I think that some teams have had success burying the uh, NFT and the crypto part in the game and just, you know, a bit like Reddit that has huge success, as I understand, with a bunch of avatars that people have, and they don't even know that they're holding an NFT. I think it'd be sickened if they found out they had an NFT because it's really nice, elegantly put in, but and the blockchain part is buried. Conversely, down the other end, which is, as you say, where we are, which is fully on-chain games, where really you could that's sort of integral to what the game is in a way that it can't be in the background. I mean... I'd love to get rid of all the UX issues of wallets and crypto that I don't think people necessarily care about. But but nonetheless, that's in order to play these kind of games because it runs on a blockchain. And I think, you know, it'd be a long podcast if I started chilling what we're doing. But the short version, I suppose, is that I think you can create a genuinely new kind of video game by putting all of it, rather than running everything on a game server, instead running it on a blockchain. I think it opens the door to a new kind of game. And which also is just intellectually a good way to spend my working day. So I'm not complaining. Yeah. Matt, uh, Matt knows all about it, right? Uh, you know yeah, about this I mean, category? Look, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by fully on-chain games. David knows this. We've talked about it quite a bit. Um, I think um, it's, yeah, it, like the, the design space is, is relatively unexplored. 
Um, These games could not exist without a blockchain. Uh, It's not just about, hey, you know, I own these digital assets that I can trade or I can sell or I've got these tokens. It like every bit of logic is on the chain. Um, and we could we could spend this whole podcast talking about the various parts of that that are interesting. I think you know to the broader question of like you know adoption uh, from a, a larger audience. There are um, a lot of technological things that are being improved uh, in sort of on the sidelines in the background that will go a long way towards improving not only fully on chain games but uh, blockchain games generally. So things like zero knowledge proofs, um, things like account abstraction. Um, these are really important to making blockchain games more accessible uh, to an audience that is accustomed to traditional games. And as these technologies start to improve and become adopted by more and more teams and improved upon, that's where things will start to compound and we'll get more people coming into the space, in my opinion. My last question for you, David, is more on the the tech side of things. And in more recent episodes, we've talked about a bunch of the, the L2 announcements of late, such as Immutable and Polygon, uh, joining forces, and what does that mean for for where teams of the future are going to build their their blockchain based games? Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you were at least at one point building. Maybe you still are building on um, Starkware. So I, I'm just kind of curious to get your your updated view on this L2 landscape. Whether you've rethought anything internally or thinking about changing anything up, or just just generally what your your views on where to build these things. Uh, how that's right. evolved. So, should we clear half an hour for me to talk about L2s then? That'd be great. <laughs> no, I, I just do it. I say a couple of things. So I think that probably L2s are a, uh, layer two solutions are a good way of a uh, better place to run games on. Seems like a really interesting to, uh, uh, development. Uh, but also it's moving all the time, right? So uh, it moves at such a pace that trying to plan a strategy around what a blockchain can do today when you're going to release a game in a year's time is a bad idea. So in a way, from my point of view, I, I said, look, I'm just going to let the dust settle. I, we can we can make a choice a little bit further down the line. And uh, But, I, you know, to, as Matt says, like, there's so many people with a lot of money that are vested in trying to improve things and uh, to, in, in terms of blockchain infrastructure. So I think... Uh, you know, it becomes easier and easier to build games for blockchain over time. Well, good luck with that. Uh, (laughs) Thanks, Dave. going to be really interesting, I think, to watch uh, what David's got going on, uh, just out of curiosity at the very least. Thank Um, you. But in terms of moving on in in tech and not uh, being as bullish on a particular segment, we're we're now moving pretty heavily into the AI territory these days. And I know, Matt, you've been writing a lot about AI stuff, and there's been some really interesting stuff going on in the space. Yeah, so I'll be the first to acknowledge that I am following very closely the Web3 guy to AI guy pipeline. Uh, So, you know, you can give me your thoughts on that in the roundtable inbox uh, if you have some (laughs) some criticisms there. But, um, you know, uh, those of you who subscribe to the newsletter will have seen last Sunday we published a piece um, titled Gaming Gaming's Generative AI Boom is Just Getting Started. Um, And so this, this was a good opportunity, I thought, to sort of survey the landscape uh, it's been about four months since ChatGPT was launched and about six months since I first wrote about this topic in Novic Digest. And so you know, a lot has changed. Uh, if you've been following AI at all, I mean, just new developments every day, new tools, new possibilities. And personally, I find this stuff really interesting. And so it's it's been a lot of fun to write about. 
uh, and it was a good opportunity to see where kind of where we come down as an industry on this stuff so far. Um, you know, as with most things these days, the response has been polarized. We've got a lot of people um, typically on the early stage, startup, venture capital, early adopters who are really bullish. Um, as you can probably guess, I tend to fall on that side of the spectrum. And then there are uh, a, a meaningful um, group of people who are, are against this for a variety of reasons related to you know, uh, protection of uh, legal protections, uh, stolen work. Um, a lot of people think generative AI is maybe, um, you know, it's interesting, but it's not useful or practical in a sort of real life game development scenario. Um, there's been a lot of commentary to that effect from, you know, real AAA studios. Um, and so, you know, this writing this piece was a good opportunity to kind of like, uh, take the pulse on where we come down on some of these things and see who has made some announcements, who is meaningfully building in this space or adopting these tools in their pipelines. So as I said, mostly the people who are are all in on generative AI tools thus far are the smaller studios, let's say small to mid-sized studios, um, and they're looking for efficiency. Um, these tools allow them to eliminate a lot of really tedious work from their um, workflows, whether it's concepting, uh, doing concept art, writing these like really short bits of dialogue. Um, there was a news story from Ubisoft uh, the other day, which was about them using a, a tool called um, Ghostwriter, I think, which allows them to create these barks for NPCs, which are just like throwaway lines of dialogue that would take a narrative designer hours to write all these different variations of like, you know, whatever uh, an NPC might say in the town square and a generative AI tool can come up with that in seconds. Um, so when you think about these types of use cases, you're um, eliminating a bunch of really tedious work for people who can then free up their time and their creativity and their bandwidth to work on stuff that would, in theory, um, benefit their game in other ways. Um, so, you know, that, that's where you see a lot of these early use cases. Um, I think there are a lot of other use cases that are being pitched that are kind of way out there um, that may materialize in the future and may not, you know, things like entirely AI generated games or entirely AI generated uh, 3D worlds that, you know, maybe we're on our way there, but it's, it hasn't materialized just yet. Um, uh, you know, and, and to that effect, we've seen some announcements from big companies as well. So Roblox made a splash talking about their generative AI tools. Unity has talked about some of the things that they're going to be doing with uh, Gen AI. But um, the, these big companies, um, they've made mention of it, but they've not really gotten into the specifics of how exactly they're going to do it, when these tools are going to roll out, when we can use it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's more to come, right? Um, I, I, I saw an interesting quote from Tim Sweeney. Uh, of Epic Games on this topic, where, where he was asked about these tools, and he was he was saying essentially that like most of these these big companies uh, with lawyers are essentially not going to do this stuff, or at least not going to be early adopters, because there's so much ambiguity over authorship and ownership and, and stolen work that it's like it's just too much of a liability for them to really dive in headfirst. They're going to let some of these smaller companies figure it out first. Um, so. Before I go on to like sort of the, the new craze, which is like the autonomous agents, the baby AGI, the auto GPT, things like that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I wanted to just ask the group, like, 
What do you think? Where do you come down on the usefulness of these tools for game development today? Um, do, you, do you use them in game development? Uh, do you use them for your job? I mean, I know I certainly use ChatGPT and other tools uh, frequently, but where do you all come down on like the usefulness as it stands today with these tools? Yes, D- David, could you find any use for them in, uh, in your current game development? Yeah, David's as, uh, the game developer. As you're, as you're on the cutting edge right there, right? So like, really, right. that's got to be a, a tricky one for you. Yeah, we do. Um, not, uh, I would, I'd be lying if I said it was part of the workflow yet. I know a lot of other game developers have. And, and in a sense, maybe we're not creating a kind of game that is uh, where AI is obviously useful. Like if I had to create a lot of assets, a lot of artwork, then that feels like it would be useful. I think uh, there's no doubt that it's going to end up in, it's already somewhat in people's workflow. And I've noticed even in the last six months, it's, it started off being like, oh, yeah, it's a good way of getting some concept art done to, oh, actually, now we're building assets. And, you know, in time to come, those will be 3D assets and those 3D assets will be animated. It's all coming. You can draw a line, right? So mm-hmm. I think, uh, I, I, so I think that's all coming. And that would be interesting. The other part that maybe you're going to touch on in a second, maybe I'm not even thinking about it the right way, is like, what does a player get to see of this? Does it create a different kind of game? Is it just a productivity enhancer? Or do does the player go, oh, I love this game. It's got AI in. <laughs> now, I can think of examples like uh, I think you were talking about an NPC with, uh, you know, with dialogue. And if that NPC can watch what you're doing and remember what you said to it before and have contextually correct dialogue, that's like an NPC dialogue that's more in- interesting than one that's been scripted trying to capture a few events that the player might do. So that's like an enhancement. I wouldn't say that's a new kind of game, but I'm sort of more interested not just on the productivity bit, but but like what is a player experience that they haven't experienced before because the AI now exists in the world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's a, an interesting point there where there are some of these early games like AI Dungeon where you can just kind of the possibility space is wide open, right? You can just kind of take it wherever you want with your own imagination. But in many ways, um, it's like it's almost too much choice for a player to be like meaningfully like um, different from some of these other like in, in many ways as a player you want a tailored curated experience because you want to experience that world or that narrative you don't want to just like make it up yourself like um, that's that's the game developer's job that's not my job as a player like you make me a good game not yeah, the other yeah. way around so so like to, to your point like I think I think that um, that's still being figured out, right? Will AI tools enable brand new types of gameplay? I think yes, but I think we're not really there yet. Um, and there need to be some constraints, some bounds around um, what the AI is generating. Otherwise, the possi- it's just analysis paralysis. Like, there's too many choices. Um, that's kind of my take on it. And we it does talked. seem like the ability to dynamically respond to stuff is like the big strength, right? Where it's like, whether that be through dialogue or through fiction, like that's where it can actually make it up as it goes kind of thing where a game system just can't do that, right? Like other than like procedurally generated stuff, like that seems to be maybe the the big unlock here for actual game experiences. Yeah, we talked last week about um, like emergent behaviors that exist in AI and, you know, discussing like where do you draw the line on what behaviors are allowed to exist or can you even <laughs> draw the line to, to some to some extent? Like, can you think up all the possibilities that need to be, you know, 
uh, like drawn boundaries around. Um, and I think, you know, that'll be interesting, both in terms of like emergent behavior, of course, with like NPCs or, you know, what's going on in the world, but even behind the scenes too, like adjusting difficulty settings, like personalizing what people can do in the games just based on, you know, what it picks up about how you answer things or how you act. I think um, I think it, it's going to be pretty profound, but as always, the hype cycle um, is real. And, you know, you sort of, even though it's moving really fast and it's kind of absurd, you know, you're still going to have to take a step back and not get too ahead of yourself. But at the same time, and maybe this will like segue kind of into like where you want to take this next, Matt, is like what I think really levels things up is kind of the step beyond just for everyone's poking around the chat GPT. It's when a platform when it when a tool like that becomes a platform and it starts becoming embedded with all sorts of APIs and and increasingly when various AI tools and APIs can start connecting with each other where in a simple prompt they're allowed to be more powerful and what and more complex and what they can do and what outcomes they can create and to me like it's hard for me to like really wrap my head around where exactly we are right now uh because i feel like a week ago i didn't know half of this stuff was even a thing um but but anyways yeah becoming more of a platform where all these tools can intersect with simple prompts that's that's where my head is just trying to grasp what that even means right now yeah i mean you you raise um two good points one is a great segue to um the sort of the latest hotness in, in generative AI. But I mean, your point about things changing so rapidly, I sort of feel like we're, we're in the middle of this exponential curve that's just going up. And um, it's, you know, even for me as someone who follows the space pretty quickly, it's impossible to keep track of all the developments that are happening so frequently. It's, um, it's really incredible. But um, anyways, <laughs> sort of setting that aside for a moment, like, the big thing, and, and something I referenced in um, in the piece it, uh, that's sort of been taking over AI Twitter lately, is this idea of autonomous agents. So the first one I think was called Baby AGI, and that was um, put forth by uh, uh, an emerging uh, VC uh, manager named Yohei Nakajima. And um, there's there's others out there. There's Auto GPT. There are there's one called Hugging GPT, which is also called Microsoft's Jarvis. There's God Mode, Agent GPT, AI Legion, Camel. There's a whole bunch of these, and I'm sure tomorrow there will be twice as many. Um, but essentially, what these things do, in a nutshell, I'm oversimplifying here. These are language models that um, interact with a task list, and they automatically generate, prioritize, and execute tasks based on a predefined goal that you feed it. And these um, these models can hook up, as you were alluding to, Aaron, to different um, tools or processes. They can do things outside of the kind of natural language shell that ChatGPT has. So they can search the web. They can do web scraping. They can interact with apps and files. Um, and this is where, if you sort of project out ahead a little bit, like this is where things get really kind of interesting and also scary, where um, they're they're not just you know responding with text and telling you like, hey, you should do this or change your code in this way, but they'll actually go and do these things. Um, and you can um, with, with some of these new autonomous agents, you can set them up to run continuously, uh, you know, assuming you have like the credit limit on your um, API bill. Um, but you can just let them run continuously and execute these tasks that they are setting for themselves. 
Um, so it's, I don't know, it's fascinating, but, um, one of the ones, one of the, um, instances of this that really, uh, caught the eye, uh, caught the eyes of a lot of folks in the games industry was this study that was done uh, out of Stanford where they put together, I don't know how many, it was like five or 10 or 15 of these autonomous agents in a kind of RPG like setting. It's kind of a top down, imagine like Stardew Valley or Pokemon style graphics. And there was uh, however many of these autonomous agents um, in this same setting and they fed them, you know, predefined goals. And I think um, they asked them to like plan a Valentine's Day party or something. And one agent was able to convince the other agents to attend this party. And I think some of them like flaked out and some of them brought gifts and like, I don't know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's worth investigating. But if you think about this for game applications, you know, what does this mean? Not just for NPCs, but for things like, um, you know, personalized onboarding or um, maybe uh, like a co-op play with an AI. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just riffing here, but like we could all kind of speculate about some of the crazy use cases that this, um, this kind of implementation of generative AI could enable in gaming. So that was the that was one of the things that really kind of blew my mind. I'm curious to hear your all's thoughts on on this autonomous agent thing, Devin. What do you think? I know you're playing with this. Yeah. Thing. So like the the thing that this brings up to me, the autonomous agents part especially. So like something like Auto GPT, right? Like every step it's going to do, it stops and like asks if that's okay, other than if you give it permission to just like keep going, right? And so while I'm not a big fan of like worrying too much about the ethics or like safety guardrails and stuff like that, especially for games and stuff like that. It does seem like maybe we need to consider like, how do we have like another AI babysitting it or a set of like uh, stop buttons and circuit breakers that stop things when it's doing something that is like outside of the parameters. Because like when you're saying like, Hey, I give you a high level goal and you just execute until you've established that that's where we start to get into skynet level problems where we go oh well it turns out that goal is gonna like it has to involve eliminating humanity as part of its goal <laughs> to just scrape the internet or something right like and that's that's where we start to run into problems like even in games right where we're, like you've seen microsoft constantly get into this problem where you know they had their their twitter one a while back you know that turned into hitler pretty fast then they had the one that was on bing that got pretty crazy pretty fast and it's like people are going to troll this people are going to act all kinds of weird ways to it so what i wonder is like if we start putting this into npcs or the things where there's a certain level of, of behavior that's just happening un unmodified like un uh babysat by the game developer or by whoever like how do we even like start to look at how do we like put in whether it be guardrails or stops or something like imagine a game just crashing because the ai does something the game developer didn't want it to like, how do we stop it? Do we just make the AI just like the character, the little NPC just shut up if it's about to say something really offensive? Like, it seems like a, a problem that's not like a let's pause it for six months, but uh, maybe we should think about, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, I think the next three years or however many years, it's going to be pretty wild in terms of what we see. And again, don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But, you know, if you connect the dots back to like the autonomous agents point where you start giving AI more access and control and you know you empower it to do things around the internet across different apps and things like that it really is operating with a mind of its own in some ways of course it's prompted but um but yeah i'm sure we'll hear some wild stories about things that ais are doing that 
you know, was a result of some emergent behavior that wasn't exactly planned or prompted or fully thought through their repercussions that have to be dealt with. I think it's just going to be one of those interesting, like sign of the times kinds of narrative that that emerges. But but yeah, I mean, I think the the reward uh, probably I don't want to say it outweighs the risk, but there's there is tremendous like upside potential in terms of like how like the these AI agents act as helpers and turbocharge all the work that we're doing like in our jobs or personal life or, or wherever. And yeah, I'm excited to see where, where all of that goes. I'm also curious. I've just been trying to process like, what does this mean for companies? Like if um, it's, it's so obvious to me that this, this wave is going to lead to an efficiency boost and we're already starting to hear kind of the the cries out there of like, oh, is it going to replace jobs? And of course, most of it is from journalists who, you know, kind of whine about everything. But um, but like even so, like I do think like we're going to start to see more pressures. We're going to see small companies like leverage these tools probably really effectively first, but then large companies would be crazy not to. So then it's just a question of like, are we going to see downsizing? Are we going to see, uh, you know, just if theoretically like if it takes half as many people to build a triple a game as it did before because of these tools i don't know but just you know hypothetically are we going to see them not have as many people are they going to make twice as many games like are they going to double down into creating more stuff i think the next few years is also going to be really interesting just to see how companies grapple with this because i feel like it's the first time it's a bit different from web3 in the sense that this is like a tool that kind of permeates all parts of like the the value chain and the creation chain um, that I don't know if the games industry has seen something like this before. It's not really a platform shift. It's more of like a, a value chain shift. Um, and I'm very curious to see how the industry will respond and react. I'm really, really not sure. I am a simple man. I want to play Matt's birthday party game. You know, weird. <laughs> I was talking like 10 minutes ago, ago. I wonder if we'll be able to buy, build a new kind of game because we've got AI. And then I'm just thinking about the birthday. I mean, I know it's not a birthday <laughs> party game, but like, oh, that's like a better version of The Sims you just described. That sounds great. So I welcome it at any cost. Sure, we're bringing ourselves rapidly closer to the singularity. But in the meantime, we get to play birthday party games. So that's all good with me. You know. <laughs> I'm looking forward to when this podcast is hosted by the Max Hedrum version of me exactly. in the near future, right? The deep fake Devin. But uh, on, a, on a much more grounded level, uh, on older older companies here, we have a, a pretty interesting acquisition of Sega being the surprise uh, buyer of Rovio. Yeah, yeah. That's. A, I mean, I, I'm sure that anybody listening to this podcast has heard that news already, so it won't be news. But, but equally, somehow it caught me by surprise. Maybe everyone's reaction that I spoke to is like, what? Sega, I didn't see that coming. And they go, oh, yeah, well, that does make sense. And I suppose, yeah, Rovio were sort of in play. If you, you know, I think they sort of uh, flirted with Playtika a while. So, oh, yeah, well, all right. So they're sort of in play. And uh, actually, it does sort of make sense from a Sega point of view. And the price seems right. So it's one of those ones that's both surprising and unsurprising when you sort of look back in the rearview mirror. From, from my point of view, uh, what what was your well? First of all, what is before we get into the meat of it? What was your reaction to the to the news? 
I was also surprised to see Sega was the one who was the buyer. It wasn't, if I had to guess five companies, it probably wouldn't have been the one. But as you mentioned, you know, now that it's said, you can sort of kind of see what they're, they're thinking. So interesting yeah, outcome. That, that was the response I've heard from a lot of people, myself included. It was like, oh, Sega, like they're still doing stuff. Like, um, <laughs> I, you know, I didn't even know that they were looking to acquire um, mobile gaming companies or companies generally. So. Yeah, I mean, I, hey, as a as a child of the '90s, I'm happy to see this news. I think uh, I, I sort of dug around a little bit, and uh, my initial reaction, and this just shows that I don't have a good worldview, is like, oh yeah, well, Sega could use some help in mobile, and then you, I had had a look on the Sensor Tower, and I'm saying, oh, okay, so Sega West doesn't do particularly well in, uh, in in terms of mobile. But in the East, they're, they're killing it. I mean, they're, what did I say, uh, probably combined, it looks like about $25 million a month. So, you know, they're doing better than Rovio are. And, and so I think that Sega have a lot of mobile expertise, but they just haven't been able to translate that to the West. And, and so maybe this gives them a bigger footprint or more expertise at making Western games or something. But, you know, I was... I was misunderstood the situation when I thought that Sega needed a leg up in mobile. I think it's they need a leg up in mobile in the West, I suppose. And I suppose the other thing that people are talking about is that, uh, you know, $775 million is a huge number. Nonetheless, if you think of other mobile companies that had early success, so Supercell, King, uh, Zynga, I guess, then they haven't played their card as well. Uh, famously, they went for the sort of proudly said we're going to be Disney. Where and again, I had a look at their company report and said, okay, they they smashed it with the movies, right? Two great movies, half a billion dollars each. But if you look at where their revenue from licensing, it's three hundred million dollars coming from in-app purchase in the games and ten million from licensing. So you know they haven't had a movie out this year, but I mean that strategy of uh, creating a ton of revenue from licensing just isn't working for them. And when you compare with, you know, uh, Zynga selling for $13 billion and Supercell valued at north of 10 then you would say maybe they would have been, been better off doubling down on a mobile strategy where they keep 70% of the revenue. Maybe. I, I mean, the way I see it is, like, I mean, I think you're right. Sega has room to improve mobile in the West. And um, this is one way to just kind of immediately inject a boost. On the other side of the equation, Rovio has sort of been running in place for a long time. Um, They've been trying to branch out beyond the Angry Birds IP for years. Hasn't really worked. Um, And then if you just even look at like the business as a whole, um, their revenue has been roughly flat-ish over the past five years. And so is their stock price over the past Five years. Right. And so both companies are looking for like an injection of some type. And um, interestingly, both these companies might be able to to give each other <laughs> what the other wants, where you know, Rovio plugs a hole in in Sega's um, portfolio. And um, with Rovio coming into Sega, it probably will unlock access to other notable IPs, namely like Sonic, right? Um, to to be able to to build around um, elsewhere and kind of make an extension beyond just Angry Birds, and I think that's interesting. When I when I look at this deal, um, it is a sixty three percent premium to 
what Rovio was trading at before Playtica um, announced its its first bid to kind of kick the whole bidding war into motion. Uh, and so uh. um, it actually <laughs> has become more expensive. Um, and if you look at the multiple that um, it's being purchased at, which is, you could say it's like about 16 times last year's um, EBITDA, which of course is you know, excluding certain certain factors like like taxes and isn't a perfect representation of like the actual profits and cash flow, which should be lower. 16 times EBITDA um, does price in some growth. And for a company that <laughs> hasn't been growing to then be bought priced in growth, um, it means that Sega like has to unlock something new with Rovio for this deal to even just like break even in terms of its justification. And, you know, I think there are things that they can do. We talked about, you know, extending like the Sonic IP kind of handed over to Rovio to do some stuff. Um, maybe Sega can help Angry Birds expand even beyond mobile in some ways. I don't know. Um, and of course, like, yeah, their licensing revenue is it rounds to zero right now. And and um, Sega has had more success lately on the licensing front than than Rovio has. So maybe there's more that they can work together to unlock that upside. But I think that upside generally across the board has to be unlocked for this deal to make sense. And I think a lot of it will. Um, I think there are other areas that it is more uncertain and therefore uncertain of whether true value, true outsized value will be created from this deal. But I think it's a great outcome for Rovio. And now it's really up to the combined team to prove that they can create create you know pretty tremendous new upside that didn't exist before from being together yeah i'm really curious which way the ip ends up going because uh you know is it going to be sega using angry birds ip or rovio using sonic ip and i think another interesting like angle on that is sega's a a, bitty, a, a pretty prolific arcade developer and there has been occasionally some Angry Birds, say, related games on arcade and stuff like that. Does this open up a, a more of an opportunity for Rovio stuff to, say, make it into the arcade space? Um, especially if we're talking about, like, you know, they do, Sega does well in the East, and maybe Rovio doesn't do great in the East. Maybe there's an opportunity for Rovio to move into the arcade space, for example, in Japan and things like that. Like, do you think there's some good cross-pollination from, like, their different expertise that they have individually combined with that IP or even we see some Angry Birds and then in Sonic the Hedgehog 3 or if there's a second Angry Birds movie you see a guest appearance by Sonic you know that kind of cross-pollination stuff you can see there's a lot of room for upside there so you're right there's the arcade there's pachinko I don't know how much money that you know but there's like Sega has his tendrils everywhere and you can imagine a Sonic Angry Birds game so that seems obvious you they talked in their press release about they're going to help Rovio get to other platforms that would suggest I suppose console I, I suppose so and then conceivably just helping Rovio get more of a foothold in the East generally. So it feels like there's a lot of potential room for that upside. Often execution is a lot harder than, uh, than, than it's written down in an email. But, um, but nonetheless, you could see like four or five places where that upside could come from. Um, so, yeah, that, that sort of works for me. Hopefully they can make it work for them as well. I would I would hate to see this be the end of uh, of Rovio if they can't find a way to be a value to Sega. Of course, Do, uh, here's a I'm pulling out a second. Do these mostly work? 
like uh, well so i try to think of like big mobile acquisitions e and ea and glue didn't work quite as best i know or so far uh take two zinger aaron will notice did i think take two share price tanked a little bit on that news but are they making good on that I mean, I think they pretty heavily overpaid for that deal, given what we know right. now about the state of mobile. Right, right, right. And then Zynga Peak, I think, worked, and Activision King certainly worked. So I think that maybe the mobile acquisitions seem to work better than maybe in console. So I guess the prognosis, my guess is this will work out, but uh, it's nothing more than a hunch. Well, best of luck to them. Uh, we, we all hope <laughs> that it works, right? Because, you know, the Angry Birds is uh, is a, a bit of a classic in the in mobile space, especially from the early days. So it would be good to see them uh, continue to survive, maybe somehow make it past Angry Birds into some other new IP. Mm. But uh, either way, uh, I want to thank everyone for coming today. Great conversation. I also want to remind everyone about the, the mailbag that Aaron talked about at the beginning, podcast at novic.co. So make sure to send in your emails, your comments, let us know what you think, ideas, other things you want to just share with us. Tell us where we're wrong, which yeah. I'm sure is a lot of things, especially when we're <laughs> talking about stuff like AI and you know all the craziness going on there. Absolutely. Maybe you'll spark some some new uh, topics of conversation in future episodes. So definitely uh, open it up. Obviously, kickstart that, get it rolling. We're just kind of now spreading that out. So take advantage. But either way, we'll see you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.